Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Um, what were we saying? Corinth, Corinth Q&A. Corinth Q&A. So we're in a series called Corinth Q&A. Uh, last week, <clears throat> very fitting, the text was over, the, the kind of the question we addressed rather was, what is the difference between accountability and being judgmental? Well, it's almost like Paul knew that chapter four was going to come before chapter five as he starts to talk about what does it mean now to judge those that are inside the church or to discern those inside of the church. And so this week's question is, how should the church handle sexual sin? How should the church handle sexual sin? And so I have to give a disclaimer here as to what sexual sin is because I received a phone call this week from one of the missional communities and they, they said, hey, last week in your sermon, uh, you mentioned watching porn in isolation and that that was sinful, but you didn't mention watching porn as a group. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, <laughs> this is why Paul had to write two letters to the church. So to be clear, it's not going to be on the screen. Uh, here at Heights Community, we believe sexual sin is any form of sexual experience that exists outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And so there's lots of different things you can fill in uh, with that. I don't know how to give you any more caveats other than that. Any form of sexual experience that exists outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is what we would determine is sexual sin. And so with that in mind, let me ask you, how do you treat sexual sin in your own life? How do you treat the sexual sin that exists in someone else's life? This is what Paul is addressing this morning. Uh, the reality is everyone is asking two questions. I would encourage you, if you're not a note taker, to take some notes here in a second. Start writing this down. Put it on your phone. Everyone is asking two questions. And it's, am I loved and can I have my own way? Am I loved and can I have my own way? And the way that you answer these two questions are going to reveal to you this morning the way that you view not just sexual sin, but sin in general in your life. Am I loved and can I have my own way? So let's look at it. Let's create a framework for you this morning. Uh, the first way you could answer that is yes, you are loved and yes, you can have your own way. Well, that would be what I would call the passive church. This church would be passive in its experience with sin. This is a worldview then or a view that's going to be taught in the church that says you are God and you can do whatever you want. You, you can go do whatever you want to kind of create your own rules. There's no accountability in a church like this. There are no rules in a church like this. There's a, even if it pertains to sexual sin, there can even be an air of pride and arrogance like we're seeing in the Corinthian church where it says like not only can you have your own way or not only do I think people can have their own way but look at how much I love them I love them so much more than the way that you love them there's a sense of pride and arrogance that can come in the passive church this environment though hear me now creates a church that is self-serving right what what can you do for me it creates an environment in church that is self-seeking what can I do for me how can I get more out of my own sin, out of my own life. It ultimately then creates a church that is self-destructive. It will implode upon itself. This is, I think, maybe the church 
aspects of the church we see in Corinth. You could also answer those questions with no. No, you're not loved, and no, you cannot have your own way. This is what we call the militant church. These are the folks that take the fun right out of fundamentalism, don't they? This is the church that is constantly demanding more and more and more from their people, but they're not providing the emotional support for when they fail. That's an abusive church, spiritually abusive, spiritually manipulative. This environment then, and it teaches that if you just perform, then you'll be loved. If you just do enough for me, then we will see you. If you can just do just a little bit more, well, then maybe, Lord willing, that God might, God might find some favor upon you today. But you got to keep working hard. This is a church like maybe Westboro Baptist Church. You can see their videos all over the internet. This environment, though, ultimately then would lead you uh, to see a God that is not gracious, a God that is not merciful, a God that just wants you to die under the weight of his law and his expectations, removing the grace and mercy that comes from the cross of Christ. Uh, you could also uh, perhaps answer a no and then yes. No, you're not loved, and yes, you can have your own way. This is the, what I've been kind of coined here, the neglectful church. The neglectful church says, I don't really care if you exist. And although, by the way, your sin is kind of annoying to me. Could you just go be somewhere else, right? The show must go on. I don't have time to engage in you or walk with you. But, but rather, I mean, people are showing up. It looks like we're doing pretty good. Just take your sin somewhere else. This environment then will breed no accountability. This environment is probably due to lazy leadership or perhaps leaders that they themselves do not want to be held accountable under the authority of God's word. And so what happens then is that they have a church, man, that is just ridden with people begging to be seen. And they will lash out. And they'll act in ways contrary to their professed belief just in hopes that someone will hold them accountable. They'll begin to lash out just in hopes that someone will come before them and say, no, brother, sister, you do have value. You are valuable in Christ. Here are some of the things that I see wrong. They'll act out in, in ways, respond in ways, just simply so they'll get some, I don't know, semblance of love projected upon them. It's a destructive and damning reality in this church. Lord willing, perhaps, maybe we could say, yes, you are loved, and no, you cannot have your own way. So we call this the balanced church. This is a church that tells you no to keep you safe. When we do kind of the same thing in, in marriages, we talk about what kind of family are you building. We say, this is the type of family that fights in front of their kids. You know, this is a church that is, Real, man, a church that's transparent, that's vulnerable, a church that comes with their imperfections and their sin. They're not surprised by sin because they recognize they are themselves sinners in need of the grace of God. And so they're not settling in their sin or making war with it, but they're at least coming forward and they're saying, hey, I am a sinner in need of grace. God help us. This is why we do a call to confession every week, church family. This is a church that I would say where sanctification, which is a big $100 word for being made in the image of Christ, this is a church that allows sanctification to be the process that it is. Because your sanctification, by the way, is a process. Right? Over the lifetime, you're going to look more and more and more like Christ. And if anyone ever comes in and says, oh, when you come to faith, it should be a straight trajectory to the cross. They have deceived you, family. 
your sanctification looks a lot more like a mountain range than it does a straight line. Lots of highs and lots of lows, amen? This is a real and transparent church that is willing to discuss their sin, but they are, in fact, not willing to settle. So where would you, if you put these up, passive, militant, neglectful, balanced? I know you're not experts in it. You just have a couple notes. But if I were to take you, not in theory, but you, and the worldview that you currently hold in regards to sin in general, specifically sexual sin, if I were to take you and the worldview that you currently hold, and I was to multiply you by 250 people, what sort of church would you be? What would your church look like? We're a church planting church. If we were to plant you, if we were to start you as a church, would you be passive, dismissive? Would you be militant? You sin, you're out. Would you be neglectful? Hey, I got more things to worry about than you. Or would you perhaps, by God's grace, be balanced? The text then calls us to answer and ask, ask and answer the question, how should the church address sexual sin? And so there's three points I have for you this morning as we pertains to this text here, and it's this. We're first and foremost, man, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to exalt it, but we're going to talk about it because it's here in the text, yeah? We're going to hold people accountable to the best as we can in our broken ability. At times, we'll let you down. Uh, and we're going to recognize our collective need for Jesus because we do, in fact, need Jesus. And communion cannot come for a second time for me today more quickly because we need him. All right, easy text on child dedications, yeah? So first, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Again, for the most part, we just preach straight through the text. And so we're going to trust the Spirit here. You guys ready? Say ready. You're a little hesitant. It's okay. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, Paul says. Listen here. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Uh, for a man has his father's wife. And so Paul comes out here and, and he's saying like there's a reality then that that there's a guy in the church that has married his stepmom and has been having relations with his stepmom. And Paul says, no, that's incestual. Like, that's not something that we're going to do. It doesn't matter if you're biological or not. That's something that not even uh, the pagans do. And so what we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4, and now we're in 5, but 1 through 4, is that they've been boasting in their wisdom. They've been boasting in their stature. And so Paul is saying here, hey, you're boasting your wisdom and your stature there in the city, but you're allowing all this right here to run rampant, which reveals your arrogance. You're allowing the sin to continue, right? And so we don't know why this man married his stepmom. There's all this ideals behind it as far as commentaries go, but we don't read into the text. We want to pull out of the text. What we do know is that Paul says incest will not be tolerated. We do know that in the Old Testament, it's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy, there's actually a law about it that says a man shall not marry his father's wife. And so while we have been set free from the law and the condemnation that comes from the law, there's still a moral aspect of that law that the apostle Paul is coming and saying, hey, you're bound to that. And incest is not something that will be tolerated. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul says not even the pagans would do that. And so what you need to know is just a little bit about the Corinthian culture here. And the Corinthian culture was very similar to our culture here in America. It really wasn't much 
different. And so the idea of this progressive movement is actually not progressive at all. It's actually a regressive movement. If anything, we're just going back to how things already were. There's nothing new, nothing progressive that's actually happening in our culture. We're just regressing back towards what was. And so their culture was similar, probably I can almost say the exact same as our culture, and that there was a a complete and total acceptance of all things sex and all things sexuality. It was no different there in that regard than it is here, which then means that the scriptures then are not outdated because we're addressing the same thing 2,000 years later after this letter was penned, yeah? And so the, the scripture still remains living and active, amen? Still addressing the things in culture, not outdated by any stretch of the imagination. And so the culture of uh, Corinth then was ridden with what's called false gods or these pagan gods. That's what that word means. Someone who's not Jewish, someone who was not a Christian. They had a plethora of false gods that they would worship. I'll try to keep this PG with kids in the room. But essentially in their culture, what they taught, these pagan religions taught that the way you experienced sex, not just individually, but literally in big groups outside of their temple was an act of worship. And the way that you engaged in that, the experiences that you had as a big group was a form of like spiritual enlightenment. And in so doing, right, it actually puts you up on the same, I don't know, the same playing ground, the same hemisphere as the other cultural gods of the time. It wasn't just like have sex in groups and go and be merry. It's like, no, you can be gods when you do this. That's what their culture viewed. That's how their culture viewed sex. It's, again, not very different from our own culture. And so Paul comes in and he says, hey, not even the pagans. And so isn't it interesting that, that the pagans literally in that culture viewed incest as something that was untouchable. And so the church then, hear the weight of what Paul's saying. So the church then is participating in something that even the pagans looked at and they're like, oh bro, you've gone too far. <laughs> you've crossed the real line right there. We don't even, we don't even do that. We don't talk about that. That's something that we don't even do. So does that kind of help you understand the weight of what's happening in the text this morning? So then verse 2 makes a little bit more sense. He says, and you're arrogant. You're arrogant in this. And then it sets the tone of how we should approach sin and how we should feel sin, how we should feel towards sin in our church family and in our body. Ought you not rather to mourn? He said, oh, you're so arrogant. But mourning should be the response when sin runs rampant in the church. Why are you not broken? Why have you settled? Where is your complacency coming from? Why have you forgot the gospel and what Jesus has done for you? Right? He's not coming in militant. He's not passive. But with a deep sense of longing and mourning, he's saying your arrogance is also running rampant as seen in what's happening in this man's life. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so the reality is then they're boasting then in their wisdom, right? They're boasting, look at us, listen to the great orators. We want to look more like the culture. And that's there, that kind of defines what's happening, right? The church no longer cared about holiness. They wanted to look more like the culture than they wanted to look like Christ. Oh, there's so many churches that fall in this category, isn't there? And so they've accepted the sinner. And so there's a possibility that they're not only boasting in their own wisdom. They're quite possible. They could be boasting in their acceptance of the sinner over here in an intense amount of sexual sin. And Paul says, you should be mourning this man, not exalting this man. You should be mourning this man, not lifting him up in this regard. You should be calling him to repentance and calling him to faith. And so the problem then is their over acceptance is going to destroy the church. 
Their overacceptance is going to further plague the church. How should the church handle sexual sin? I would say in the exact same way that we handle sin in general. We've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it. Also, we're not going to exalt some sin over anything else. Right? Anything that is sinful, anything that's contrary or contradictory to the word of God is in fact sinful. It's no longer walking out holiness. And so we're responsible for 66 books of the Bible, which means we're also responsible for all the sin that lies therein. It's our responsibility to talk about all of it. We're not going to be passive in that we just look over the sin. We're not going to be a militant church that overreacts and just ejects people out. It'd be just me standing here if that's what I did, right? And then I'd be like, oh, by the way, I just looked in the mirror. It turns out I got to go too. It wouldn't work, would it? We're not going to be neglectful and say, oh, I hear you dealing with that. Also, I got better things to attend to, right? By God's grace, we might be balanced, which means what we do then is we take sin serious but we're not surprised by it. We take it serious, but we're not surprised by it. We should never be comfortable or dismissive of people, including ourselves, when we're regularly, habitually, willfully not walking out holiness. We should fight and aim to get to the cross and be avid confessors. That's what it looks like to talk about it, not just to preach on it on a Sunday, but to set up environments for you as a church body where you can come forward and confess. Gosh, if you've been here longer than six weeks, you know we're pretty avid confessors from the pulpit, aren't we? Talk about all of our shortcomings. Talk about our arguments with our wives, the way we over-discipline kids. Like pastors, above all, have got to model and lead out. And hey, turns out, cat's out the bag. I still need Jesus this week, right? The day I start preaching like I got it all figured out, you need to find a new teaching pastor. You need to come in here with a desperate need for Christ. That's what they tell you. I'm normally preaching to myself. We do a call to worship. Mark, Mark dropped a bomb call to worship on us as a man who had been gripped by his sin this week. He didn't come up here for a show, did he? But with transparency and authenticity, with tears in his eyes, I look at worthless things, he said. He didn't say, this is for you. He said, no, I look at worthless things. Oh, but I have a king that sees me. <laughs> Saw me worthless and gave me all my worth. That is the gospel we set up environments for you in missional community where you can come and be avid confessors. For those of you that are engaging in even deeper discipleship called DNA, there's literally a question for you that says, how do I respond in my unbelief? Let me ask you, how are you responding in your unbelief this morning, church family? Are you being an avid confessor or are you putting on a facade like you have it all figured out? How are you responding? Are you talking about your your need for Jesus? Or have you simply grown comfortable living out all the sins that Jesus saw fit to die for? First thing we're going to do is talk about it. Second thing we're going to do is this. We're going to hold the church accountable. We're going to hold the church accountable. I'm going to try to stick to my notes as best I can. Uh, pray for me. Verse three. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, just talking about the Holy Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church, this is a text that requires a great deal of faith. Now we get to see Paul exercising his apostolic rights 
before the church. Last week, if you remember, the church of Corinth coming all judgy, talking to Paul about the way he looked and talking about Paul about the way he talked and how he didn't match the culture, right? They wanted to be a greater orator. Well, I think it's safe to say right now, Paul's coming in with all the words he needs as an apostle, isn't he? I, I am not with you, but oh, you better believe I'm with you. And if I'm not with you, the same spirit in me is the spirit that's there with you. So by the way, I am with you. And I'm not making a suggestion about how to handle this man now. I've already given my judgment. This is what you're called to do. He's coming in with that apostolic authority. Say, this is how you're going to handle the situation. I've already pronounced judgment in the spirit by the power of Jesus. Remove this man from the body. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. For the destruction of his sin. Because he's swimming in this. He's claiming Christ, but there's nothing about him that looks like Christ. He's claiming, claiming holiness, but there's nothing about him that looks holy. He says, so you've got to deliver him over. Why? So that you might save his soul. So you might actually save and redeem his spirit. Matthew 10 comes to mind. It says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, hey, give him over. What's the purpose of removing the man? Is Paul just this big old apostolic meanie, got a chip on his shoulder, coming in all militant? Well, by no means. It's not at all what's being modeled here. The punishment needs to match the crime is what he's saying. There's, this isn't just like you messed up one time, so you got to go. This is an ongoing, willful disobedience while proclaiming Christ. And he's saying that's going to infiltrate the body. And, and instead of doing something about it, you're over here being arrogant. You're boasting either in your sin or in, in his sin. It's just, you're not doing anything. And this is going to spread into the body. It's going to hurt everyone. He has got to go. You have got to care more about his soul than you care about upsetting him on that day. You've got to care more about his spirit than you care about making him feel bad. You've got to care more about his eternity than his emotions in this moment. Right? He's not repentant. He's just sad because you're going to remove him. There's a difference there, church. Care more about the ongoing, habitual, willful disobedience and the way that his ongoing sin is going to infiltrate his heart and harden his heart to the very gospel that he proclaims. We learned in Hebrews that there is even a moment that comes for the believer or the professed believer that they continue in such habitual sin that their heart becomes impenetrable to the gospel. Do you remember that sermon? Not an easy sermon to give either. Care more about his eternal than you care about that moment. So let me ask you this morning as a Christian, do you have ongoing, habitual, willful sin that has also caused you to lose sight of God's holiness? Have you simply just grown complacent in the sin that God is revealing to you today? Let me also then remind you simultaneously this morning, man, that you are a holy temple. Even in the midst of your sin, that there's a good father that looks at you through the lens of Christ's work in your place in the midst of your sin and says, holy, mine, saint, set apart. Listen, even in the midst of it. That's the beauty of the gospel, that there's a holy, righteous father that sent a holy, righteous son in your place as your substitute. And whenever he looks at you, like I put glasses on my face, the father looks at us through the work of the son and in the midst of our depravity says, blameless. Does that mean we are perfect? But in the midst of our imperfection, he says, oh, but my son is perfect in your place. That's the covenant that we've been swept up in. First Corinthians, Paul has already said, do you not know 
Listen, this is like the heart of a pastor coming in, pleading with a church. He's not being militant or passive, negligent. He's coming in. Do you not know? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Like the very spirit that spoke creation in the beginning is the same spirit that resides in you and speaks new creation right now. Even in the midst of your sins, you confess and as you repent. Do you not know, church family, the way that the Father sees you in heaven? And if anyone, listen to the tone of the Father, and if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Tell me you don't feel the same way about your kids. Come put a hand on my kid and watch what happens, yeah? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, he says. Even in the midst of the depravity, to allow ongoing sin and to continue is not loving. It's destructive. To allow ongoing, habitual, willful sin is not progressive and culturally cool. It's damning. It's heretical. It's to, it's to defame the very temple that God died for, which is us. Right? To claim Christ and to continue to walk out this posture is not something that should be accepted. It's something that will infiltrate the body of Christ. And in your lack of discipline, that infiltration of sin into the body of Christ, though, by the way, is a way that God will intend to discipline the church family. Here's what I mean by that. Verse six, your boasting is no good, he says. You're boasting in the wrong things. You're finding things that look worthless and you're giving them worth, as Mark led us through. You do not know that a little leaven, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, that is, the leaven of malice and evil, oh, but with the new leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I understand this is not language that we use, so I'm gonna teach you what it means, and then we're gonna read that passage again. I've got some notes here, but I'm gonna just... Uh, pray for me here. There's two things that Paul is really getting at here. The first is this. Uh, in, in their culture, in order for you to be able to bake bread, we got any bread bakers in the house? Okay, good. You can rebuke me when I'm done if I'm wrong here. Okay, I will receive that. Okay, from my, okay, caveat, from my understanding, okay, from my understanding, in order for them to bake bread the way they needed to break, bake bread during their time, they would have to take some of the dough from the previous batch of bread that had fermented and a little bit of yeast or a little bit of leaven had formed in it. And then they would take this previous batch of dough that had the yeast, had the leaven in it, and they would put that, she's nodding. Okay, good, okay, good. This way, this way, not this way. They would take the dough from this previous batch and they would put it into the bread. But it was a calculated amount of yeast. It was a calculated amount of leaven. And in so doing, that little bit of yeast that went into the new batch, that's actually what allows the bread to rise. Okay, so good. Okay, allows the bread to rise. And so let's stop there. What, what Paul is saying here, not, he's not being militant, okay? He's not being passive. He's not being dismissive. He's not being neglectful. What, what he's saying here is expect some yeast in the body. Like expect a little bit of sin in the body because we are, in fact, sinners. We ain't Jesus, right? And so he said, hey, there should be a calculated amount of yeast that exists in that body. But if it goes unmanaged, if there's not a balanced amount of yeast that's being put into the dough, well, then that fungus, that yeast, that leaven will run rapid and it will spoil the bread. And so that's kind of the first thing that Paul is saying. You still tracking? Okay, thank you for your help. Secondly, 
Paul brings in language of the Passover, which on first note, you're like, that's kind of, that's true, but why would he say that? Well, again, during their time, what would happen, because they did deal with yeast and dough, they would once a year, they would purge all of the yeast from the temple as well as from their individual homes in order to get ready for the Passover festival. They didn't want to have more yeast than they would have dough, otherwise the bread would not bake the way that it's supposed to break. It would actually spoil. So once a year, they would purge it. And even so, in so doing, they would actually spend a week in the desert, wait for it, they titled this festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, super creative marketing team there. And they would go seven days and they would not eat any leaven. They wouldn't eat any yeast. Any yeast. And they would do so um, to remember the reality that they had been set free from Egyptian slavery. When they left Egyptian slavery, they left in such haste that they could not take the previous batch of dough. So when they got into the desert, they had to create dough, but they had to wait for it to ferment, to leaven. And so Paul is using this as an illustration. We read that and we're like, say what? But whenever we understand what's happening here, contextually, Paul is saying, manage the leaven. If, if you don't manage the sin that's at hand in the body running rampant, it's going to spoil the body. He's saying then, secondly, remember where you came from. You're no longer a slave in Egypt. You're no longer a slave to sin. Rather, you were something all new. You were unleavened. You were holy. You're a saint. You're set apart. You're the very temple of God put on display for the world to see. And so now we reread this with some context. Verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven. The old yeast, the old fungus, the old poison. Why? That you may be a new lump. Somebody said this week, I don't really like the imagery of just being a lump. <laughs> yeah, I got some lumps myself. As you really are, what? Unleavened, that is, without fungus, without yeast, without. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, praise the Lord. Let us therefore, because that is true, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, not with what you used to be or who you used to be or where you used to be, but rather, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, because that's now who you are, he says. You are seen as holy. You are seen as righteous. And so there's a reality here that if you're allowing ongoing habitual sin to continue, it will in fact infiltrate and destroy the church body. Right? And so in your lack of being, lack of confessing and lack of repenting, that's a lack of discipline on yourself. But you need to hear me today and say, saying the Father will discipline the church one way or another to prove, as Hebrews taught us, that we are not illegitimate, but that we are in fact sons and daughters to the Most High King. Discipline will come. We have lots of things I could say about that. He says, purge the, peace, the person from among you. Clean out the leaven. Stop going back to where you once come from and so this man then right wants to walk in sin the apostle paul is saying then give him over to it give him over to it that this man wants to walk in concert and step with satan and his schemes he says then give him over to him just give him the desires of his heart it's all we're doing here this man wants to walk in the world and walk in the culture then open up the door for him right stop stop letting him claim to be someone that he is not Simply give him over to his desires, which is the most terrifying place you can be. Why would we do that? To save his soul, to save his spirit, so that he might be redeemed. Remove him then also for the safety of the church, with the whole church body in mind. Remove this individual from the gracious family of God. And you might still sit there and say, well, this sounds, well, Corey, this sounds kind of harsh, bro. And the only way I know how to say it to you is it might sound harsh to you. And it might always sound harsh to you until you sit across the table from someone that has been desecrating the cross in the name of Jesus. 
And you have to look at them and say, hey, I believe just so desperately and wholly in the sovereignty of God that I'm willing to hand you over to Satan and let him sift you out. I've had to have those conversations. They do not come quick. We're not militant. We're not passive. We're not neglectful. But it might be until you have to sit with me in that conversation, hopefully not on the other side, but on this side of the table, it might be until that moment in your life you just have a really hard time with this text. But then you get to see people respond to the gospel at times, man. And it's unbelievable. And sometimes you don't get to see people respond. And at that point, then they are removed. But I need you to know, as we sit and have these conversations, by God's grace, we hope that, that they're with sincerity and truth, as Paul calls us to, with the, the overall protection of the bride of Christ uh, in mind. We want to do that. But we're also going to let you down sometimes. Right? There are very few things that keep me up at night. I've talked about this before. Like, you can come in and be like, Corey, your sermon was trash. And I'd be like, thank you. I'll try better next week, you know? Or you can be like, bro, it's child dedication, and I invited my uncle, and you're in here talking about sexual sin, and I'll be like, well, you know, maybe the Lord had something for your uncle today. And, and then I'm going to go home and just sleep like a baby, you know? But you have David or Jeff or one of the other elders or an MC leader text me the four worst words you could ever text anyone in their life. We need to talk. Just feel free to text them on that right now, just to mess them with them, you know? Just everything in my stomach drops, man. It's very rare that I get called into uh, conversations. And so with the understanding in this room that the majority of you probably don't, couldn't give a definition to the term church discipline, uh, let me just shepherd you for a minute, okay? Uh, church discipline is not meant to be militant. It's not meant to kick people out of the church. Uh, church discipline is the process of restoring someone that is in habitual sin uh, back to the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. The goal is for church discipline is always reconciliation. The goal is not excommunication, not unless you're a militant church. The goal is always reconciliation. That as you walk with someone, you bring them in. And there's a whole system by which we do that. I'll get to in a second. And, and as pastors, it is our responsibility to exercise and to oversee good church discipline across the body of Christ, not just in certain areas, but across the whole entire body of Christ. And so you think about those four terms I gave you, passive, militant, neglectful, and balanced. There's a, a passive pastor just looks over sin. There's a neglectful pastor that over, I'm sorry, that, uh, that is annoyed by sin, right? They're just kind of, don't even want you in the office anymore. You're just a hindrance to them. I think there's a militant approach that pastors can take where they overreact to sin, Oh, I can't believe, my, my, my. It's like they never read the Bible. <laughs> you don't know the story of God's people, you know? And then there's a balanced approach. Pray for us. Where, where we take as pastors, we take sin serious, but we're not surprised by it. Like my wife and I, we do a lot of premarital counseling, and we say regularly and often, like, the gospel frees you to have really difficult and hard conversations because it's Jesus that went to the cross, not you. If you would have went to the cross, it would have just been another guy dying in Rome. But Christ goes to the cross because he's the one who is perfect. And so we're not Jesus. As pastors, we're not Jesus, which means what? That means at times then, if we're honest, dude, we're going to over-discipline. If we're being really honest, we're probably going to under-discipline at times. We're going to fall into any one of these categories in our own sin. 
Heaven forbid, we might find ourselves under discipline. Don't ever look to us like we're Christ. Don't put that weight on us. Don't put that weight on us. We come in here, we try to be avid confessors of sin, as I mentioned earlier, and as it pertains to church discipline, man, we, we do come in and there's sincerity and there's mourning and there's grief and it does keep us awake at night and we sit across the table and we plead for the souls of people. Church discipline is for the Christian. It is for the church. It's not an opportunity to throw stones at everybody out there in the culture. It's for us, for our good. Verse 9, Paul continues. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all. Listen, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Well, why not? Or, or the greedy, greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Why? Since you would then need to go out of the world. He ain't saying, hey, come in here and be all judgy to those outside of the church, right? As Pastor David says, you are either on mission or you are the mission. And so he's saying, no, like there's a, there's a real mission here that matters and you can't come in all militant judging all the non-believers for not believing. They are in fact not yet Christians, yeah? He says, you also can't come in then all passive, just kind of encouraging them in their sin. You also can't come in and neglectful as it, contain, as it um, pertains to their sin because you're removing their need for Jesus, like, so you can't, you got to come in balanced. You got to say, hey, I, I love you. And there's a Jesus that has died for you. And I perceive some things in you that don't actually look like him. Let me teach you about him. Let me talk to you about how he meets you in your lowest of lows and in your highest of highs. And how Jesus can literally relate to you in literally every single aspect of your whole entire life. And he died to redeem you and he rose so that you might also rise. Like with a balanced approach, we're called to live on mission we're not called to go out and just throw stones at everyone or act like people aren't in sin. I would ask you in this moment, what does your social media reveal about the way you view sin in our culture? Are you passive? Are you neglectful? Are you militant when you disagree with people? Or are you, in fact, balanced, right? He says, now, though, verse 11, now I'm writing to you to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother he is, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunk, or swindler, or maybe all the above. Do not even eat with such a one. For what I have to do, for, sorry, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We talked about that last week. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Church discipline is reserved for the Christian. And I want to be clear today, church discipline is a process that should be happening all of the time. So you think, what is church discipline? What does that mean? It's the way by which we get to discipline one another, not just from the pastors, but among one another. Matthew 18, we don't have time to read it all, but it lays out exactly what church discipline looks like. It says, if you see a brother or sister steeped in sin, you approach them one-on-one. -on -one. And if you win them back, praise the Lord. This should be happening, listen, in your missional communities, in your DNA, while you're standing in line out there waiting on your kids. Hey, bro, what did, what did, the, what did, the, what did the Spirit reveal to you today in the sermon? That's church discipline. should be happening all the time. When it doesn't happen and someone's not repentant, they continue in habitual sin. Matthew 18 says, hey, you take a brother or sister with you. You take some witnesses with you. You say, hey, we perceive in you now. You are claiming Christ, but you ain't walking like him. Here are some of the things we collectively have seen. We're not over here gossiping about you behind your back. We're actually confronting the situation because we love you. We care more about your soul than offending you right now. We care more about the Lord burning off that flesh, man, then you burn it in hell. We love you. We care for you. We want you to be here. Here's the grace and mercy of the gospel. Oh, if you win them back, praise the Lord for it in that moment. 
This should also be happening all of the time in your missional communities, in your DNA. When two or more are gathered, it should be happening. And then second, thirdly, then lastly, right, you, Matthew 18 would say, then you get, if they are unrepentant, then you get the church involved. Then you bring it to the elders, and that's when my stomach drops. It's very rare that I show up to your missional communities. It's very rare that I show up, right, across the table in a hard conversation like that. Oh, but when it happens, it just leads to mourning. And you know what we do when it comes to our table? We don't go, hey, militant, you got to get out. Or, hey, you're kind of annoying, as a matter of fact, if you could just square that away. I'm just here for coffee, you know? We're not neglectful, but we're balanced. Here's what we do. We say, hey, brother, sister, here's what the text says about your specific sin. I would like for you to write out how you would respond based off all of these scriptures. Create your own reconciliation plan so you have buy-in. We're gonna give you six months. We're gonna give you a grace accountability partner. We're gonna walk with you for the next six months and, and pray that you turn in repentance and faith. It is a long, daunting six months, church family. But people go to war with others for the sanctity of the bride. At the end of that six months, Lord willing, they've been reconciled to Christ. We celebrate, we take communion together as pastors with them, we pray for them, lay hands on them. It's a beautiful reality. Sometimes they do not. And at that point, that's what's called excommunication. It is the hardest thing that we have to do. But by the time we get to excommunication, we're looking at like eight months of a high level of touch. Are we clear on that? It's like eight months, nine months. If it's abuse, you gotta go. It's that simple. We've had that phone call before, no big deal. I perceive you're a predator, you gotta go. But if you're a Christ, confessing Christian man and you're in the room and you're struggling with sin, what I don't want you to hear is say, hear me say this, don't hear me say they're out. What I need you to hear me say is that you have men and women in this room that are willing to fight for your soul over long suffering and endure an incredible amount of battles with you and walk alongside you. We have a collective need for Jesus, right? You don't hold people accountable because you got it all figured out. You hold people accountable because you need the accountability. We have a collective need for Christ, third point. The reality is, cats out the bag here, fam, we need Jesus. We need to confess our leaven, we need to confess our yeast, we need to confess the things that, that we've grown comfortable and complacent in in our lives, not just sexual sin, but sin in, in general. Collectively, we need to do this to get together. And so listen here, today is the day. Hey, don't let another day go where we invite you to communion and we invite you to confess and you just kind of sit over here with this hardened heart coming up and feasting on the truth of the gospel all the while it's continuing to harden your heart to the gospel. Like the beauty of the gospel is that I said last week is that everything that you try to hide, Jesus becomes for your salvation. Like we want to hide the yeast. We want to hide the leaven. We want to kind of run back and get behind. And he says, no, no, no. I hung in public for you. Like do you, let me teach you something and nerd out for you on just a minute here for you. You know, we're going to break the fourth wall again. There's a doctrine called the doctrine of expiation. Expi what? I know, I get it. The doctrine of expiation that says Jesus did not just die for sin. He did that, praise the Lord. Praise God for him going to the cross. But the doctrine of expiation says Jesus became the sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Do you know what that means? My gosh, it's so liberating. What that means then is that all the virus of the world and all of the sin of the world, all the yeast, all the leaven of the world, Jesus didn't look at it and go, not, up, not here. He wouldn't turn a blind eye to it, right? And here's what he did. 
where, where dough cannot accept but a limited amount of yeast and leaven, whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he says, give it all over to me. Give me all the yeast and give me all of the leaven. And yeah, he dies in that moment under the weight of sin. It crushes him. But what does he do on the third day? Oh, he rises, doesn't he? Bread of life, church family, rises to new life. And he says, hey, come and feast on me. Or you're going to get smoked by the weight of this world, under the weight of sin. All the yeast, all the leaven in the world is going to be compounded upon you. And yet, give it to me. And just rise about that. Man, with resurrection hope, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can combat that sin in Christ. But listen, but if you're trying to do it on your own, if you're trying to walk out life not in community, that tells me you ain't reading this. And so if you don't have this in your life, you don't have the Holy Spirit revealing what this means to you, you're already dying under the weight of your own yeast and leaven. And today's the day you get to repent of that. You get to confess, God, I don't trust you. God, I am passive. I am neglectful. Heaven forbid, maybe you're militant. You're just trying to hurt yourself because you don't believe Jesus took your hurt. You gotta do something more. Perhaps you are here today and you are balanced. You say, bro, I'm an avid confessor and repenter. I know my need. Praise God for you. Keep doing that around people. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're gonna take communion together. We're gonna do a little bit different. I wanna really usher you into uh, confession and to repentance uh, this morning. And so... You can apologize to your kids' workers for me going so long, but it's a sermon worth giving today. Usually I'll read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, what communion is, what communion is about. I'm not going to read that, but I will tell you communion is a gift given from God. It's a redemptive gift given to us where we do get to confess and to repent and to come forward. We get to take and feast. We get to eat the bread, being reminded of Christ's body broken for us in our place as our substitute. We get to be reminded of Christ's blood spilled in our place as our substitute as we take the cup. That's what I would normally read to you. He says, do this until the day he returns. But there's also a text that immediately follows that that I don't usually read. And I want to read that over you today as I plead with you here to confess before you come. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner uh, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What he, what he means by that and is that whenever, if you habitually come to communion pr- professing with your mouth to believe the things of Jesus but not walking that out at all, it'll actually harden your heart to such an extent that your heart will become impenetrable to the gospel become impenetrable and that sin won't just reside in you in the secret places of your mind and your heart and your soul that sin will actually begin to make its way out into your family we said child dedications into your kids into your co-workers you begin to infiltrate and kill everything around you and so he says then let a person examine himself then that means to confess to ask the spirit God where do I not look like Christ in my life right now Where do I not look like you? Examine yourself. Let the person examine himself. Examine herself. Then, right then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says, oh, come and celebrate. There's nothing to be hidden anymore. It's actually the revelation of sin in our life that reveals to us, I need Jesus. There's nothing to hide about that. I'm not him. I need him. Lord, reveal where I need you at in my life. Examine yourself. Why? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. Oh, but if we judge ourselves truly, 
if we genuinely take a look at who we are, we would remember in that moment, we would not be judged. Why? Because we're actually in Christ. He's not not calling you to introspection so you feel bad. He's calling you to introspection so you can be reminded of your need and then the reality that you have him so you can look again in the mirror and go, I do struggle with that, but the Father sees me as holy. I do struggle with that, but oh, he sees me as a temple. I might have a little bit of graffiti up in that mug, but he still sees it as a temple. I might struggle, but hey, he still sees me, right? This is my many of you weeks. Some of you are ill. Some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are what? Disciplined as sons and daughters so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Every week we invite you as you come to partake in communion to confess. Let me invite you again this day. Confess your leaven. Confess the yeast in your life is tearing you down, man. Ask the Lord to reveal it to you and then give it over to him. I would also ask you and invite you, seriously, consider this week perhaps not taking communion, not to hold yourself in contempt. But if you're genuinely wrestling and you're not yet confessing, you're not yet repenting, hey, don't eat destruction upon yourself. You can sit here as long as you need to today. It'd be two o'clock, maybe you decide to take communion. Praise the Lord for it. You can call us midweek. We'll tell them, come take communion with you. But genuinely search your, search your heart and your soul, man, and let the Spirit speak to you this morning. For those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. It's for the saints. Come forward when you're ready.